It's summertime. It's warm. It's beautiful. You do the only logical thing you can think of to compliment the moment. You grab some snacks, you kick on the AC, and you binge watch some Game of Thrones. No, you're more adventurous than that. You go camping. It's beautiful. You see squirrels and birds, you frolic through nature, you post pics on Snapchat. Everything is fantabulous. After two days of sunburn bliss, you return home, you take a sweet, sweet hot shower, crawl into your comfy bed, and doze off. What a great weekend it was. A few days later, with memories of the weekend already vanishing into the ether, just before lunch, something peculiar happens. Your elbow starts to itch. You see a small but undeniably real rash begin to bloom. Maybe you didn't put enough sunscreen on. No, you know, it must be that you're stressed out. It's hives. It can't be. Oh my gosh, why is this so itchy? And it's just not kind of itchy. It's the kind of itchy where if someone gave you some 80 grit sandpaper, you might just find a way to work all the way to the bone to satiate the unrelenting torture? Ah, what now? Ah, I know. I'm going to Google my symptoms. What could it be? Peruitis? What's that? Psoriasis? Eczema? Jock itch? Can I get jock itch on my skin? Oh my god. Oh my god, it's Lyme disease. What if I was bit by a tick? Does Lyme disease kill you? As you work your way through the search results, the reality of the situation hits you like a ton of scratchy bricks. Poison oak. I don't feel so good. Hello and welcome to the Poison Cast, a program dedicated to explaining the deadly science behind toxins, venoms, and chemicals. We will travel deep inside the human body and investigate just how these fascinating and dangerous molecules kill you. My name is Scott Barnett. I am a PhD candidate in cell molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada Reno School of Medicine. And this week we are going to discuss poison oaks and depending on your latitude or longitude, poison ivy or poison sumac. These plants, along with a bunch of other ones that didn't make the cut for this episode, are all kissing cousins when it comes to their toxins. So just substitute poison oak for whatever regionally appropriate variant you have and you're all set. Interestingly, and gratefully, this is the first poison we've discussed that many of you most likely have had a decent probability of coming into contact with. And I am no exception. I got poison ivied, if that's a verb. For the first time a couple of years ago, well, actually it had to be the second time, but we'll get into why that is, and it did not disappoint, friends. That's part of the reason I elected to do this episode, because I wanted to learn about the thing that has caused me so much pain in my life. (laughs) Why not? Next episode, ex-girlfriends, the deadliest toxin. (laughs) What am I doing? (laughs) But really, we're here to learn about a toxin called Urushal. Urushal? We need to stop making words that are weirdly hard to pronounce. Can we have a moratorium on that, people? Urshal sounds like it's either a hot new tech startup or the name of some planet on a crappy fantasy novel, like Flumkoi missed his home planet of Urshal. But as it turns out, this delightful toxin is actually derived from a Japanese word called Urushi, which means lacquer. Not liquor, lacquer. And in Japan, 
Fun fact, poison ivy-like reactions have been reported from contact with lacquered objects such as bar tops, rifle stocks, and toilet seats. And not that anyone is asking for my opinion, but if I were to go on a limb, I would say that toilet seats and rifle stocks would just about top the list of things that I wouldn't want to make me uncontrollably itchy, but that's just me. So if you haven't pieced it together yet, Urushal is the active ingredient in the crap sandwich that we call Poison's Ivy Oak and Sumac. Now, because this nasty substance has been tormenting people for thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of years, the exact origin of it isn't exactly known. With that being said, some of the first records of the poison date back to the 17th century. Fun fact, Captain John Smith, nice strong name, gave Poison Ivy its name in 1609 during a little jaunt to America. And in what I can only assume was Captain Smith's passive-aggressive attempt to give England, his homeland, the big middle finger, he took the plant back to England to be liberally spread across the island as a decorative plant. Way to go, buddy! So, the good news is that the cold, damp, and otherwise crappy weather that Britain is famous for had an unanticipated benefit in that poison ivy didn't grow well in England, and, well, since then it has died out. Tomeo deneos et done forentes, as they say. But back here in America, America, we have no such problems. Poisons of ivy and oak are found pretty much in all 50 states, with oak being more prevalent on the west coast, ivy on the east, and our friend sumac, much like Waffle House and Hurricanes, is more of an east coast thing. And if that's not enough places to find Urshal, you can actually get a nice healthy dose in the shells of cashew nuts and the seeds of ginkgo biloba trees and a whole bunch of other stuff too. Good times. Each year, the Academy of Dermatology estimates there are up to 50 million, 50 million cases of Urushal-induced dermatitis. That's a lot. Why so many, you ask? Well, I'll tell you why, friend. Because these plants are really, really hard to spot. They are essentially the child molesters of the plant world. That is to say, they look just like all the other nice plants. They are pretty much everywhere you go, and you don't know you're in trouble until it's way too late. Really though, just Google poison oak or poison ivy, and if you're too lazy or apathetic to do that, I'm going to paint you a mental picture here real quick. Just imagine a green leaf with three to five gentle points about half the size of your palm, maybe the full size of your palm if you're lucky, and you're about 90% of the way to understanding what this plant looks like. What's that you say? You're describing what sounds like pretty much every other plant on the planet? Yeah, now you're getting it. The problem is that through whatever insidious turn of evolution was at play here, all those plants are perfectly camouflaged to look just like every other bland and innocuous plant out there. In other words, unless you're a Boy Scout in search of a merit badge or you work for the Forest Service, Good luck figuring out which is which. And even those guys aren't too great at identifying the poison plants because 10% of all Forest Service lost time injuries are due to one of these three plants. So there you have it. And if you thought for a minute that you could use the oily residue, the urushal that's coming out of the plant, um, as a differentiating factor to identify which of them is which and if a plant has urushal or not, you'd be wrong. They look and feel and smell just like every other green leafy plant. So 50 million cases. But urushal, being an oil, is actually quite interesting. 
So what does this molecule look like, you know, from a chemical sense? Think of something that looks like a smiley face with two big eye stalks, like a snail. Urushal is a mixture of something called catechol derivatives, and catechols are six uh, carbon ring family member items. We call them benzene rings, and this benzene ring, this catechol, has two OH groups dangling off the side of this benzene ring, which are eye stalks. The other thing that Urushal has is a long tail, which is just a bunch of carbons attached to this benzene ring. What's unique about Urushal is that tail portion of the molecule can be of varying length and it will be just as effective as a toxin. This in some weird way is akin to certain drugs people take. Have you ever heard of bath salts, right? That's the drug that makes people think it would be a great idea to eat other people's faces while they're still alive. Yeah, true story. So one of the reasons it's so hard for the government to regulate bath salts is because the organic chemists who design these drugs routinely switch out one or two atoms for different atoms, ever so slightly altering the chemical structure. And whatever the part of the brain that that this drug targets is still activated by these slightly modified drugs. This way, manufacturers can basically say they're not producing the chemical that it took the government years of red tape to make illegal, and this cat and mouse game continues. Well, Urushal is is like that in a way. The tail portion of the chemical can change fairly significantly between plant species, but your body will recognize it all the same. If it sees a catechol with a tail, the itching begins. So, speaking of which, just what is your body doing once it's exposed to the Urushal? You know, as I mentioned, Urushal is an oil, right? That makes it very easy for it to be absorbed by the skin. Your skin is largely keratin and collagen and a few other things. And, and if you remember the term like dissolves like from like 100 years ago, and you know that your skin repels water, you can logically infer that your skin will absorb, absorb oils, and well, it does. So this Urushal, this oil, wiggles its way through the epidermis, the outermost layer of your skin, then to the dermis where it finds keratinocytes, the skin-making cells, and a bunch of other proteins hanging around there. Once it encounters the cell membrane, which is just a specialized type of an oil called a phospholipid, um, our friend Urushal sees this oily membrane and says, hey friend, you're an oil, I'm an oil, why don't we do what oils do best and hang out together? So the Urushal is absorbed into the cell's membrane and it kind of sets up shop there. Now here's the crazy part, right? Your cells are actually totally cool with this. In fact, they don't mind at all that the Urushals become its new roommate. Occasionally, Urushal will change the shape of a few proteins in the membrane, but your cell keeps on trucking and everything's pretty much good to go. So what's the problem then, right? Like this isn't some poison that's just going to take out your whole body. Like it seems to be intermingling with everything quite nicely. Where do the blisters and the scabs and the itching come into play? Well, for about 10 to 20% of the population, they never do. Your body completely ignores Urushal and it is eventually metabolized and you never knew it was even there. But the other 80 to 90% of us, what about us? Well, remember how Urushal and the cell membrane are now buddies and sometimes Urushal changes the shape of proteins in the membrane in the cell, or excuse me, the, the membrane of the cell? Well, most people have really strict landlords that don't want random friends just sleeping on couches and playing video games, which is really what Urushal is doing. 
the landlord in this increasingly strange analogy is your immune system, right? So now your immune system's coming into play. Um, sidebar, if you're like me, and, and I know you are, you've had the thought, hmm, how is it that my immune system is supposed to differentiate good things from bad things, like flu viruses from something like, oh, just a cell my body makes. After all, your immune system can't just willy-nilly decide to kill whatever it wants to and let something else live. Your immune system differentiates friend from foe by doing something unique. It basically licks each cell and sees how it tastes. Really, your immune system, the one that identifies intruders, uh, we call these T-cells, they went through a very long maturation and vetting process in your lymph nodes before they were released into the rest of your body. When these immune cells float around throughout your body, they are constantly tasting everything that they come across with specialized receptors, kind of like a tongue. And if they see a virus or a bacteria or pretty much anything else that doesn't belong, they mark that cell for destruction and it gets um, basically taken out by an aptly named cell called a killer T cell. And then and then it's wiped out and your body moves on and you're healthy. Voila. Well, remember how I said those immune, your immune system goes through a vetting process and a, it, to, to make sure that, that it's picking the right T cells, the right immune cells? That process ensures that your immune system knows what you as a person looks like at the molecular level. If it doesn't look like you, your body says it must be an intruder. So when Urashal enters our cell membrane and changes the shape of some of those proteins, the immune system will eventually wander over and taste that cell, and it wants to make sure it belongs, and it goes, hmm, this cell doesn't taste quite right. It looks like a cell I should leave alone, but something is off here, so it must be sick, and I need to recycle this cell. Now, if that otherwise healthy cell could talk, the conversation between your immune system and that cell would probably go something like this. Hello, officer, how are you? Thanks for stopping by the apartment. What can I do for you? Oh, oh, you want me to turn down the music? Okay, okay. Hey, here's the deal, officer. I know I don't look like I belong here, but I really do. I'm not sick. I work just fine. It's, it's just that a couple of my membrane proteins, they change conformation, you know, change their shape, and they don't look right. But really, I belong here. I make skin. I help the body. This is all good. Can't we just let this whole thing go? I'm, I'm really sorry uh, for this weird int- uh, friend I invited over, Urishal. Well, I'll make sure he goes. End scene. I'd like to thank the Academy. Thank you. Thank you. Now, if your immune system... Is if this is the first time your immune system has seen this urishol, you actually just get a stern warning from your immune system and it lets it go. This process is called sensitization. And if you've ever had poison ivy or poison oak, you can be pretty certain that this is the second time you've been exposed because your body already gave you a pass once. And if you're to the point where your immune system decided it's time to play ball, what it's going to do is call in a bunch of backup support. It's going to call in things like cytokines and these killer T cells, and they cause inflammation and itching and swelling, and they all rush to the scene. And when the cell dies, you get scabs, itchy scabs, which everyone knows are the best kind of scabs. And then you eventually heal, and the cycle of life continues. This whole magical process is called type 4 hypersensitivity disorder or contact dermatitis or 
if you're getting fancy, delayed hypersensitivity because it takes days for your body to determine what's up to kill those cells. Type 4 hypersensitivity disorders are more common than you might think. You probably have heard of multiple sclerosis, which is a type 4 hypersensitivity, where your body thinks that myelin, this special kind of fat sheath that covers your neurons to allow the the signal to move very quickly, uh, it decides that it's bad and it attacks it. When your body rejects organ transplants as well, this is a type 4 hypersensitivity disorder. Now, this is not to be confused with type 3 hypersensitivity disorder like rheumatoid arthritis, but if that sort of thing tickles your fancy, stick around for part two of the show. Now, when we talk about most of these poisons on the podcast, we reference a term called the LD50, which is lethal dose 50% or roughly the amount of whatever toxin or poison it would take to kill you. For instance, caffeine has an LD50 of 150 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, which means that an average adult, if they were to chug 150 cups of coffee like back to back, well, a couple things would happen. One, I'm guessing it would be recorded on a GoPro and uploaded to YouTube because that's the society we live in. And two, that person would be dead because that's how much of caffeine it would take to kill you. Urshel doesn't have an LD50 of really any significance in this case. In mice, they've tested it to be about 74 milligrams per kilogram. But in reality, once you scale up for humans, you would need to rub yourself with millions and millions of Urshel-containing plants for a very long time, probably weeks, every single day for it to kill you. Uh, And you'd probably die of some weird infection long before that. So it's just not going to happen. But that doesn't mean that Urashal is not fabulously potent. It is comically so. It only takes one nanogram, which is one billionth of a gram, or if you were to take a paperclip, cut that into one billion pieces. That's how much it would take to cause a rash. 500 people can get a rash from the amount that would cover just the head of a pin. That is how potent this toxin is. If you want to scale up just a little bit more, it would only take a quarter ounce, which is a little more than a teaspoon, about how much villanella you're going to use in your your chocolate chip cookies. That could get the entire world, or at least the people susceptible to it, a rash. That is how deadly, well, I shouldn't say deadly, this is how... (laughs) how uh, effective this toxin is. And what really sucks is that this, because it's a small molecule, small molecules tend to be much more stable than complex biological products like proteins. So once the plant dies, it, that urushal can remain active anywhere between one and five years, just hanging out, waiting for you to brush against. Now, now it's not a green leaf for you to identify. It's just a dead brown leaf on the ground, and that can give you poison uh, ivy as well or poison oak. So, and the good news is, though, it really can't spread between people, if you've heard that that rumor. Um, once it's absorbed into your skin, it's there for good or for bad. There's not much you can do about it. And um, if you have some weird fetish about touching other people's open wounds, you're not going to get urge all, uh, hypersensitivity from that. The one exception is pets. It gets in their fur, doesn't really absorb into their skin, and so it's still fair game if you have an outdoor pet that uh, you decide needs petting and they've been in some poison ivy or oak. So the last question you might have for yourself is how do you prevent a rash if you've been exposed? If you just Google this, you're going to see millions and millions of answers. Well, the problem is is that your only real move is to move fast, 
to get yourself some soap, some water, and rinse yourself down. Once it's penetrated your skin and found those subdermal skin cells and other proteins, you're, you're done for. All you can do is mitigate the damage using topical treatments. You know, every other treatment is just putting a Band-Aid on the problem, and there's no, re- no reason to spend a lot of very expensive money, if that's a term, to spend a lot of money on very expensive remedies that aren't going to work. If you're to the itching phase, just get some calomel lotion or whatever is going to satiate that and, and move on. So my personal solution is grandpa's old cough syrup, but your mileage may vary. So that's almost it. In a nutshell, a cashew nutshell, perhaps. It's <laughs> oh, good one. It's good one. And as you probably put together yourself, Urashal is a pretty devious little fun molecule. I think with that, we're probably going to put a bow on the first episode back from our hiatus. That's pretty fun. Hope you continue to tune in and listen to the shows. And I would be remiss if I forgot to mention that at the top of the show, I did say I was a victim of Poison Oak myself. If you go to thepoisoncast.com, click on today's episode, Urshal, you will see fun pictures of my journey through that fun experience. And with that... I think we'll put a bow on tier one of the show. If you want to know a bit more about the immunology related to Urshal, please find your thick black-rimmed glasses, your pocket protector and slide rule, and hit play to continue. Otherwise, we will see you on the next episode. If you have any suggestions, please go to thepoisoncast.com, shoot us an email or leave a comment, and please go to iTunes and do the same. We very, very much appreciate it. Hello, friends. Now that all the civilians have left the building, we can have a nice little chat. We're going to be focusing on immunology for part two, and that begins with haptins. Does that sound familiar? Haptin, H-A-P-T-E-N. If you've forgotten, a haptin is a small molecule that, when combined with a larger carrier, such as a protein, can elicit the production of antibodies that bind specifically to said haptin. In the case of Urushal, it's not a haptin by default. That is to say, Urushal in its native state is completely innocuous. It becomes a haptin when it is oxidized after absorption. If you remember from the first segment, Urushal is a benzene ring, uh, a catechol uh, with two hydroxyl groups attached to carbons one and two. Both of those hydroxyls are oxidized to form quinone, and now we have our haptin. And so it's that little transformation that makes the big difference there. This haptin is called, um, or excuse me, this this haptin can elicit your immune response at this point. But more commonly, the haptin is uptaken into the membrane of a nearby cell, such as one of these uh, keratinocytes, where it binds to and changes the conformation of some of the membrane proteins in the cell. Then it is recognized by the immune system. So this is kind of the what will cause a lot of the damage here. And in the conjugated state, when it's bound to the membranes, urushal is virtually impossible to wash off. That's why all those remedies are essentially useless. One of um, Once it's activated, the haptin is really just waiting for a patrolling T-cell to come by, and, and there's nothing you can do at that point, short of cutting that chunk of skin out, which I probably, well, certainly 
would not recommend that you do. And it doesn't take much to generate the immune response. We talked about how little of this takes. 0.5 micrograms, just 500 nanograms of this purified urushol is all it takes to, to figure this out. I found that in a paper way back from 1974. So they've known about this for a while. This is indeed a really tiny amount of uh, urushol. A grain of salt weighs 60 micrograms, so that's over 10 times or I should say one-tenth of the size of a grain of salt is all, all the urushol takes. So once it has been haptonized, that's a word, right? If Shakespeare can do it, so can I. Once the urushol has been haptonized, it is first met by our friends, the Langerhans cells. We just said immune system in part one, but they are Langerhans cells, which are specialized dendritic cells, APCs, antigen-presenting cells. And these are found throughout the skin, mucosa, pretty much Anything that comes in con- that urushol is going to come in contact with through you, it's going to it's going to hit one of those Langerhans cells. And if you remember, dendritic cells take up and process antigens. In this case, urushol to become fully functioning, happy members of the antigen presenting family. They then migrate to your lymph nodes, where they present urushol to T lymphocytes by binding to uh, T cell receptors, CD28, which is this co-stimulatory effect. If if uh, if you've taken immunology, and what that essentially means is that it, uh, your T cells become highly active. They've they've 100% confirmed that this is a bad thing. Then they recruit a whole bunch of other T cells to the urushol affected areas, where they can provide a signal that um, that is going to start this cascade of interleukins. Uh, IL-6 is one of the big ones here, which stimulates not just the immune response, but it also helps fight infections by by bringing more T lymphocytes to the scene to clean up all the debris and the mess and kill whatever's there, essentially, right? But in the end, it's these Langerhans cells that started this whole process, kind of like act, by acting like security guards. The, um, they ring the klaxon of the immune cells, and, and everything comes running. And this little fun game we're playing is, as we said, a type 4 hypersensitivity disorder or a delay, 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 delayed type hypersensitivity or cell-mediated immune memory response. And this is because it can take up to two to three days for the rash or, or I should say symptoms that you would notice to develop. And unlike other types of hypersensitivities, this is probably the most important part here of a type 4. It is not antibody-mediated but rather it is uh, cell-mediated, a T-cell-mediated response. So that's that's important. And when it comes to play ball, it's these CD4 uh, plus T, uh, helper T-cells, specifically TH1s, that recognize the antigen in a complex with these MHC2 complexes uh, on the surface of these APC cells. Other types of hypersensitivities that re, uh, generally rely on antibodies, not these Th1 helper cells. You know, think about like if you have allergies, um, your body's still recognizing an antigen through an APC, but it's recognizing like pollen or whatever in this case with a, with a with um, an allergy, and this elicits an IgE immune response. Um, which will cause mast cells to vomit their guts out and do all the fun stuff we know about there. You know, in like type 3, which a lot of people confuse with type 4, is also antibody-mediated, but it's IgG. Um, think of like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or something like that. So this is type 4. It's different. Not antibody-mediated. That's really the takeaway here. It's strictly through these, these memory uh, helper T cells here. So moving on. If I recall, and it's been a while, 
I believe it's these helper T cells are the reason that why you don't react the first time you're exposed to Urushol. You know, they process the APCs, um, the APCs uh, process it, um, and they generate immune response by activating these helper T cells. And it does not generate a rash the first time, though. And when antigen-presenting cells are um, are activated again in the future, it's these memories Th1 cells that will activate the macrophages and cause the immune response. If I recall properly, if uh, you know better than me, and you probably do, let me know and I'll correct it. So, and this this inflammatory response can be a lot of things like macrophages that secrete IL-12 if you know that which stimulates the proliferation of these uh, CD4 TH1 cells from naive T cells um, IL-2 interferon gamma uh, which induces further release of TH1 cells thus mediating this kind of like positive feedback loop um, when more and more cytokines are being released more and more TNF-alpha all these sort of things or gamma excuse me um, causing inflammation, itching, general unhappiness, and this will happen until all that urushol has been metabolized and removed from the system, and then the system will start to spin itself down. And it's these activated CD8-positive T cells that target the cells that are going to destroy, you know, and whereas activated macrophages will then produce these hydrolytic enzymes, and then they destroy all of these infected cells, and now that's where you get additional inflammation through the cytokines and um, and cell destruction. And this is where where when you're we, other than you'll see the redness from the cytokines that's causing the inflammation, and it's the CD8 and these macrophages that are going to cause cell destruction, and then you're going to pus and bleed and all that fun stuff, and you're going to need to heal at that point. So in the end, when all the cells are killed and all the fluid, i.e. the dead cell guts, ooze away, the macrophages do their job and clean up the mess. You know, when you're exposed to Urushol, the ultimate determining factor of how you will react is down to these helper T cells. Not, so the two key points, not antibody mediated, and it's these helper T cells that are being activated. Um, depending on how sensitive you are to Urushol, which is genetically based, you will either have no reaction or there you may require hospitalization. You know, it's this weird twist of fate in that in that if you're like, let's say, a bubble boy, you know, I, I don't know if that's politically correct anymore, but if you do not have an immune system, which some people don't, you actually wouldn't respond to to poison oak or poison ivy at all. You would be it would be nothing. So um, weird thing there. Now you can see why there is so much research into preventing like cytokine release from cells because so much of the damage done from diseases is not the disease itself, but your body's response to the disease. But we'll end here because we're getting into the woods at this point. Get it? Woods? Poison? Oak? Yeah, good one. <sighs> That's why you listen, folks. On a final note, I know I've been absent for the past year, some sort of hiatus, whatever you want to call it, but I plan on getting at least one show out a month now. I hope, fingers crossed, so don't uns unsubscribe. I am in the process of writing two manuscripts, and I have to defend my PhD in the spring, yada yada, nobody cares, they just want the shows out, I get it. Time is tight, but I'm dedicated to this, so I will see you next time, friends. Thanks. Thanks.